This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. you please turn in your Bibles tonight to Genesis chapter 43. We'll be looking tonight at the entire chapter, Genesis 43. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now the famine was severe in the land. It came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For this man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, Could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me. and We will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be the surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever." For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men. will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. They said, It is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys." When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came back to the encampment 
that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand. We have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet. And he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother, so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself, and then by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would ready our hearts to receive it, that we might know and understand the truth in it, that we would see your hand of providence towards your people. And even in this, uh, the story of the family history of God's people, we would see shown forth the hope and the glory of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we were in Genesis, we saw the awkward first reunion of Joseph and his brothers. After over 20 years of separation and estrangement, the brothers came to Egypt to buy grain, not knowing who they were dealing with, not even knowing after they got there and saw him and talked to him that this was their long-lost brother. What they did know is that this Egyptian ruler in charge of food distribution during the famine did not seem to like them very much didn't even uh, hesitate to immediately accuse them of being spies. He thought he treated them like they were a problem. He spoke harshly to them. He even threw them in jail for three days and then kept their brother Simeon when it was time for them to return. Now Joseph, for his part, knew who he was dealing with. He knew that that was his brother's, and that is why he acted the way he did. 
Now, in some ways, it seemed during that first reunion that he might have acted with some vengeance, at least at first. We see a softening of Joseph as the story progressed. But after his brothers were in jail, he gave them a better deal. He initially said he would keep all of them but one who could go back and get Benjamin, but he eventually only keeps one of them there and sends the others back. We also saw at one point last time that Joseph was moved. He had to leave and weep. He was brought to tears at the revelation that Reuben did not want him to be sold into slavery as he was. And so after that, the brothers returned to Jacob. But then there was more bad news. Joseph told them that if they were going to come back again and if they were going to get Simeon back, they had to bring Benjamin with them. But Jacob in his old age was still playing favorites among his sons, and he refused to let Benjamin go to Egypt. He would rather Simeon stay in Egypt and even suffer and die there than risk his favorite son, the last son of his favorite wife. God saves sinners, and he also sanctifies them. Now, we all agree with that in the abstract, in the big picture of things, but it gets a bit trickier. It gets a bit more complicated when it comes down to the particular means by which God sanctifies us. We're all on board with sanctification when life is generally easy and going our way, but often the most effective means of sanctification, the ways by which God convicts us and changes us and renews us, are through times of trial and hardship. Times of sore and severe testing. We have seen, with the exception of Joseph, a generally less than flattering portrayal of Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers in Genesis. We could go back to Reuben's illicit relationship with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah, or Simeon and Levi's murderous rampage against the city of Shechem after their sister Dinah was defiled and Jacob could not be troubled to do anything about it. It was Judah and his turning aside to the Canaanites and their pagan practices, his treachery to Tamar and his, old, his own engagement in cultic prostitution. And those are just the major incidents that we know about in the house of Jacob. And then all of this before we even get to the evil plot against Joseph by which his brothers kidnapped him and sold him into slavery and then deceived their father to believe he was dead. Now we know that not all of the brothers were equally complicit in this. For instance, Reuben did not want it to happen as we revisited last time. But the majority of Joseph's brothers wanted him gone would even resort to violence and great wickedness to make him go away because of their envy and jealousy. And all of these things we have seen before from the house of Jacob and from Joseph's brothers come to bear as we now come to these passages dealing with their reunion with Joseph. We see that in the many intervening years, God has continued to work in his people. He has sanctified them. He has brought them to an end of their sins and more and more made them into the kind of people he wishes them to be, as they are essentially as the house of Israel, the visible church on earth at the time. And one of the means by which God sanctifies his people 
And the means by which God accomplishes his purposes is by permitting his people to undergo hardships and difficulties and testing. This is what we see with this famine. A famine is a bad thing, a very dangerous and destructive thing. Particularly in the ancient world, people starve, people die in times of famine. This would have been especially dangerous for a nomadic people like the house of Israel. We tend not to understand these things when we think about them because as modern Americans, we have been so blessed in our land that famine and mass starvation aren't really things that we have to think about. But for the people of that day, they were dealing with matters of life and death. And it is a crisis of this sort that is going to change Jacob's mind and bring God's purposes for his people to pass. And so we'll look at the next installment of our family reunion tonight in three points. First, we see redemption in verses 1 through 10. We see one of the more unlikely and previously ungodly of Jacob's sons taking responsibility for the good of God's people. And second, we see a return in verses 11 through 25. The brothers go back to Egypt to again deal with this harsh ruler. But then third, we see a reception in verses 26 through 34. We see a very different treatment that they receive this time around. So redemption, return, and reception, those are our points for tonight. First, we see redemption in verses 1 through 10. So we read at the opening of this chapter that the famine was severe in the land. We'll find out later that at this point, they're only about two years into the seven years that this famine was going to go. Now, Joseph and the Egyptians knew that it would be seven years because God had revealed it to Pharaoh in the dreams and to Joseph in interpretation. But the house of Israel did not know that it was going to be seven years. Part of why Jacob was reluctant to acquiesce to the Egyptian ruler's demands to send Benjamin is that the brothers had come back with a load of grain and perhaps he thought they could make it through the famine with what they had. But they don't. They can't. The famine persists, the grain runs out, and they're going to have to go back. Now, it is Jacob that first seems to recognize this. We see in verse 2 that he commands his sons to go back to Egypt to buy a little grain. Perhaps in ordering them to buy a little, he thinks they might be able to get away with it. They might not have to worry about this Egyptian ruler if they're only going to get as little as possible. And so they won't have to take Benjamin. But the brothers who had gone who had met with this ruler before, knew that that was not going to work. And it is one brother in particular who will take on the task of persuading Jacob, and that is Judah, beginning in verse 3. Judah reminds Jacob that the Egyptian administrator had solemnly warned them that they would not receive another audience with him without Benjamin. Judah tells Jacob that they will not go without Benjamin because there is no point in them going without Benjamin. If they go without Benjamin, they will have nothing or worse to show for it. 
Now, Jacob initially tries to deflect the blame for this situation onto the brothers. He does not know why they would have told the Egyptian ruler that they had another brother. Now, if they were dealing with just any Egyptian ruler, that would have made sense. But unknown to all of them, that Egyptian ruler was Joseph. He knew they had another brother. He knew they had a father. And he knew how to get them to talk about it. Judah also points out that they had no way of knowing that this ruler would ask them to bring the other brother with them. Now, Jacob is not being entirely unreasonable to be concerned about sending Benjamin. This was a foreign land. It was where one of his sons, Simeon, had already been detained. They'd been treated with hostility, and it was a long and treacherous journey to get there. Who knows what could happen? But is Jacob really willing to let his whole family starve to keep Benjamin near him? That seems to now be the stakes. Starting in verse 8, Judah makes a pointed appeal to Jacob. He tells Jacob, send the lad with me and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and our little ones. That is the situation. If Benjamin is not allowed to go to Egypt, the whole family is in danger of starvation and death. But then Judah takes it one step further. He says, I myself will be the surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. So what this means is that Judah is personally taking the responsibility for Benjamin's safe passage and return. A surety, that's a legal term. It's a pledge, it's a guarantee, it's often associated with legal arrangements. It's sort of like insurance, it's basically making a guarantee, if anything goes wrong with this, if anything happens, I will be responsible for it, I will pay for it, I will take care of it. Judah, by making himself a surety, is offering himself in the place of his brother. If any ill befalls Benjamin, he will be held personally responsible. It will be charged to his account. He will make any payment or restitution for it up to and including his own life. He will bear the blame for whatever happens. Now, this isn't the only place in the Bible we see this surety language. It's just one example. We see in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 and 22, concerning Christ, it says, And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become the surety of a better covenant. So by Jesus' priesthood, By his oath-taking, Jesus has become the surety for us. So Judah is offering himself as a guarantee in the place of his brother. He is willing to bear the responsibility for Benjamin up to and including his own life if anything happens to Benjamin. And in doing so, he is acting as a picture, as a type of Christ who will be his descendant. Just as Judah offered himself as a guarantee, a surety of a covenant 
that he made with Jacob that he would bring Benjamin back safely. Jesus offered himself as the surety of the covenant of grace, the guarantor, the one who makes the payment necessary so that we might be delivered from sin and death. This is why I have titled this section, Redemption. Not only is it redemption of a temporal sort in that Judah is showing finally some ownership and responsibility, having left aside the sins of his youth, the living in estrangement and idolatry and treachery among the Canaanites. But this is also painting for us a picture of the ultimate redemption that comes in Christ. We'll see this come to fruition next time in how Judah deals with Joseph. Judah has gone from an idolater to an intercessor a sinner to a surety. Where he had no regard for his half-brother Joseph once before and plotting and doing evil against him, he is now willing to guarantee the life of the other of Rachel's sons with his own life. And this life-for-life guarantee is what Christ gives for us. Christ lays down his life so that we might have ours. He fulfills the term of the covenant, the terms of the covenant because we cannot. He saves us and redeems us and purchases us from out of our sins and misery because we can't do it for ourselves and no one else can do it for us. He is our surety and mediator just as Judah sought to be for Benjamin. But now that Judah has pledged himself as such, it is now time for the return to Egypt. This brings us to our second point, the return in verses 11 through 25. So upon Judah's guarantee, Israel, Jacob, is now willing to send Benjamin. But he's also going to try to sweeten the deal for the Egyptian ruler as much as possible. He's going to send some gifts from the fruit of the land. Now remember, this was in a time of famine, so giving any kind of food products or produce would be costly. It would be sacrificial. It would be giving up something that you might need later. But we do see that that's generally what's offered. There's honey, and then there's nuts, and then also some spices and myrrh. And then also Jacob commands that they return the money that was found in their sacks at the end of the last trip. If Jacob is going to take the risk of sending Benjamin, he does not want there to be any reason why this Egyptian ruler would question his sons or give them any more difficulty than is necessary. He wants them to deal with transparency and integrity to try to avoid any trouble. He tells them in verse 13 to take Benjamin, and then he gives them a sort of blessing in the name of the Lord that the Egyptian might find favor with them and return both Benjamin and the other brother. Note he doesn't even use his name, but he's referring to Simeon. And he closes with this line, If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So he is leaving the matter in the Lord's hands. Though he recognizes and wants his sons to recognize the great grief and hardship with which he sends Benjamin. In verse 15, they set off on their journey and returned to Joseph. When Joseph sees that they have returned with Benjamin, he acts very differently from before. He gives his servants orders to throw a feast for them, 
at the noon meal that day. Now, initially, Joseph's brothers are afraid. They don't know what any of this is about. They wonder if there's some trick or treachery in play. They thought maybe this Egyptian ruler was seeking some vengeance over the matter of the return money. Maybe he was taking them there to trap them or enslave them or worse. Now, this was also suspicious because Egyptians typically would not associate with with Hebrews. We'll see a little more about that later on. They thought that Joseph was an Egyptian, so why would he care to have a meal with them? So in the intervening time between their being sent to Joseph's house and Joseph coming to eat with them, they come clean to Joseph's steward about the money that was left in their sacks. They tell them what had happened and that they had brought that money back along with more money to buy more grain. But the steward, who was very likely the same person who had carried out Joseph's order to put that money back, says that God provided for them and he had their money. That wasn't exactly true. He had put their money back. But it was true that God had provided for them in putting Joseph where he did, ultimately for their good. Now, it is also fascinating that we see this Egyptian steward, this Egyptian servant, invoking not any of his gods, any of the Egyptian gods, but to these Hebrews, he invokes your God and the God of your father. Now, it could be that he was merely speaking to them in a manner that Joseph had instructed him to. But this could also indicate for us that this Egyptian steward talks about the true God, the God of Israel, that even as Joseph lived in exile in Egypt, he ensured that not only he himself or his family, but his entire household down to his servants were to worship and speak and act in the name of the true and living God, the God of Joseph and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It would certainly be a good and godly thing to do. Those who are heads of households or heads of anything ought to, as they are able, ensure that those under their supervision properly honor and reverence and worship God. It seems that Joseph was faithful to this, even in a strange and pagan land. Now, we don't see the brothers react to this, but one might wonder if it was strange to them that they were in Egypt and the Egyptians were talking to them about their God. But we don't know. That's not recorded for us. But what we do know is that next Simeon is brought out of prison and returned to them. So, so far, things are going quite well on this journey. They're given water to wash their feet. They're given good hospitality. Their animals are given food. They get their gifts ready for Joseph to come. And he does come, and this brings us to our final point. After redemption and return, we come to reception in verses 26 through 34. So when Joseph comes home for this noon meal, the brothers bow to him and give him the gifts that they brought for him. Then Joseph gets down to the business he is interested in. He's not going to reveal himself to them yet who he is, but he wants to know how their father is doing. They don't know that Joseph is Joseph, but Joseph wants to know because that's his father too. They reply that 
Jacob is well and that he is still alive. And then Joseph sees Benjamin. Now he asks to confirm that this is Benjamin. Remember from before that at the time Joseph was sold into slavery, Benjamin was a young boy. He was probably around six years old. Now he was an adult. He would have looked quite different, such that Joseph wouldn't be certain on first glance if it was Benjamin. But realizing that it is Benjamin and being told as much, he speaks a blessing to him. He says, God be gracious to you, my son. We also see once again at this point that Joseph gets quite emotional. He's moved by seeing Benjamin. We see that his heart yearned for him. He had missed his younger brother, and upon seeing him again, he wanted to weep. He had to get away for a moment to do so. But then he cleans himself up and comes back and orders that the food be served. And in verse 32, we see a rather curious development. I mentioned earlier that the Egyptians had no dealings with the Hebrews. This is shown and explained even in our text in what happens here. But we see how the people at the meal are seated. We see that the brothers are set in one place. Joseph kind of sits off by himself. And then the Egyptian servants have their own place because Egyptians would not and could not eat with Hebrews. Everyone has their own table, their own place to sit. Now a question here is, did Joseph's servants not sit with him because they thought him a polluted Hebrew? John Calvin has an interesting discussion of this in his commentary. He thinks that because Joseph was the ruler of Egypt, none of the Egyptians likely would have had a problem eating with him. In fact, if anything, it would have been the honor and dignity of Joseph's position that would have kept the servants away. But also Joseph, being that he was a righteous and godly man living in a foreign land, knew that he, as one of God's people, was not to mix with pagans. While it seems that, as we saw earlier with the steward, Joseph perhaps wielded some godly influence in his home, there was still some separation being maintained. Or at the very least, it was done at this meal for appearances. If nothing else, Joseph does not yet want to reveal his identity to his brothers. But then in verse 33, we see another curious development. Joseph seats the brothers in order by their age. We see that the brothers notice this. They're astonished. How does this Egyptian ruler know about this? Was it just a very strange coincidence? What would be the probability that someone just randomly places 11 siblings in birth order? It's a probably one in thousands type of chance. We also see that when the food is served, Benjamin is given extra, five times as much, in fact. Now, this is not likely happening because Joseph is being stingy with the others. This was a feast. A whole animal had been slaughtered for it. There was plenty to go around. But Joseph gives extra to Benjamin his long-lost, younger, full brother. We see that all of them together, they ate and they drank and they were merry. They were having a good time. They were enjoying this feast. Now, isn't it quite a picture? 
after all that has happened, all the estrangement and enmity and separation and hatred that had previously characterized Joseph and his brothers, that though they didn't know it, well, Joseph knew it, but the others didn't know it. They were all together feasting joyfully. It is a picture of what God can do and what God has done. Though they don't yet know that it is Joseph they dine with, God has brought all of them to the point where they would dine with Joseph, all 12 of Jacob's sons dining together again. This would be about the most unlikely of occurrences by human standards, given everything that has happened in Genesis. But God is sovereign over all. And God is in the business of restoration and reconciliation and of ordering things for his glory and the good of his people. Now, we are not yet finished here. There's going to be one more round of testing that Joseph has for his brothers before the grand reveal of who he is. But look already at what God has done through all the hardships and trials, all the difficulties, the over 20 years of separation, and yet ordered all of it for the help of his people, the sons of Israel, and having brought them back together. And even in this, we have seen Christ shown forth. We saw Judah as a surety, a guarantee for Benjamin. He was willing to lay down his own life if he needed to for the life of his brother. We've seen all throughout this story how Joseph and his innocent suffering that would ultimately serve the good of Israel was a picture of Christ's sufferings to deliver his people from sin and death and misery. Joseph went to Egypt and suffered all that he did so that God's people might be saved. Christ died so that those who God has chosen might be saved, might be delivered, might be raised from death to life everlasting. And just as Joseph lived and welcomed his brothers into his feast, Jesus lives and will invite those who belong to him one day into his heavenly banquet feast those who repent of their sins, receive and rest upon Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel, can have the hope and confidence that they will be there too. And knowing that makes the sufferings and sorrows and troubles of this life seem so trivial and meaningless by comparison. To know that God is with us, that God is for us, that Jesus is alive and one day he will take us to be with him. And so I hope and pray that you all may have that hope and confidence of salvation in Christ tonight. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your care and provision for your people and how you ultimately order all things for your glory and the good of your people. We have seen that over and over again in Genesis and over and over again in this story of Joseph and his brothers. And Father, I pray that you would give us the hope and the confidence that you do the same for us. And most of all, you have done this by making a way of redemption and forgiveness of sins in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I pray that all here gathered tonight would believe in Him, would receive and rest upon Him, that You would work faith in them by Your Holy Spirit and draw them to salvation and life so that just as Joseph's brothers were welcomed into His feast, we might one day be welcomed into Christ's heavenly feast. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.